Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Imagine if we all did this after high school, like for one year. You weren't allowed to go to university. No adults were allowed to ask you, what do you want to do with your life? The question would be banned. And then high school ended. I don't know about you, but high school was just torture for me. And then high school ends, and then you come to a place like this. Maybe some of you are thinking, that's worse than whatever I did. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if uh, prisons could look like this. You go to prison and then This is what you learn. So by now, um, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> uh, by now, there's a sense that you should know what to do when you're practicing in the zendo, when you're walking, but that probably uh, you're caught. And you might say to yourself, I should know what to do here, but uh, I'm caught. And so that's why the Dharma talks are important. Um, and thank you, Grant, for an excellent talk. There you are. Yesterday. Um, because the talks really help you clarify what you're doing in your practice. And the talks without practice are useless. Sorry to the people who hear this on the podcast. <laughs> okay, not useless, but... I think uh, to have the teachings while you're in the depth of this kind of practice is different than when you're driving in your car. And that's why it's important to have uh, good teachings, good teachers. Hopefully you have good teachers in your life, good mentors. We'll do questions after, if that's a question. 
And um, a good teacher, I think, is just when you're with the person and they make you feel whole. That's good enough. And a community, which is all sentient beings. Maybe when you came on the search, you thought, oh, the community is going to be the people who I know from Toronto or BC or wherever. Uh, but the community includes birds and trees. Everything coming out of that kitchen. The baby crawling on the... <laughs> Don't fall out the window. <laughs> So you inhale and you exhale, and uh, you're filled with birdsong and peace, and then also um, eruptions. Sometimes I think sitting is like watching a lava field. Have an eruption over there, another one over there, one over there, and then cooling. And hopefully, uh, if you can uh, just be in that field, uh, there's an overall cooling effect that starts to happen. And anyways, we don't understand any of this. That, that sheet wasn't important. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we don't understand any of this because uh, we inhale and exhale, which is impossible to understand. We do walking meditation, which if you think you understand it, you have no idea. I think the best part of walking meditation is it doesn't make any sense. Has anybody had that thought yet? <laughs> Everyone's walking in a circle, it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> But anyways, our whole life is like this. You're born, I have no idea how this happens. And we die, I have no idea what happens. And that's the spirit of how we practice. I have no idea. And maybe what makes it so difficult for us when the eruptions come is that we have so many ideas about them. And when we have so many ideas about what's coming up, there's so much room for them to stick. And then they can't move through awareness. Maybe you're having uh, memories from decades ago. Or maybe you're having memories from a week ago. Or maybe you're opening up to conflicts that you've had in your life that you're never going to resolve. But you think, still, if you keep thinking about them, you're going to resolve them. So everything that happens in life, uh, it creates a seed 
and the seed gets planted in Buddhism it's called alaya which is like the deep deep memory if there was a way to talk about deep memory in terms of genetics that's what alaya is but it's psychic memory it's not you can't look at it and everything that's ever happened has planted a seed in the alaya everything all the wars all the grief everybody who's lost somebody that they love and all the times of peace and all the kind things that people have done for each other and all the amazing art that human beings have created the music just the music is so many good seeds so anything that's ever happened anywhere uh, plants a seed and the seeds are all in the universe which is us so we have all these seeds in us like have you noticed how many images have moved through your attention this week that have nothing to do with you like you didn't make them up <laughs> unless you're extremely narcissistic and think whoa that was amazing <laughs> i just made <laughs> There's this great interview that you can watch on YouTube uh, with uh, Bob Dylan. He, did, he doesn't do interviews, really, but he did this great interview maybe about 15 years ago on 60 Minutes. And they asked him, you know, when you go back and you listen to those songs that you wrote in the 60s, what do you make of that? And then Dylan recites some of the lyrics that are amazing, you know. And then he's like, oh, I, I don't know who wrote that. And then the interviewer kind of stops and says, what do you mean you don't know who wrote that? He's like, I don't know, they just got written. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they say, well, can you write like that still? He's like, I don't know the person who wrote that. <laughs> and then they said to him, well, if you could leave a legacy, what would the legacy be? And he said, in three or four centuries, if a farmer was standing in a field humming a tune that I wrote, but they didn't know who wrote it, I would be really satisfied. <laughs> we all know this, right? Like, who thinks of all these thoughts? Especially if you do creative work. Like, you know when the juice is flowing, who knows where these things come from? So these are all the seeds. But the real question in our practice is, when you start to see all these seeds, some of them, the Buddha says, have um, uh, caused trouble, lead to unskillfulness. And some of them are positive, lead to, to positivity. And uh, the question in our practice is, which ones are we going to water? And most of the time in our busy day, we don't even think about this issue. 
It's just stuff's going on, seeds are sprouting, new ones being planted, just trying to, haven't looked at the garden in months, you know, and I'm just so busy, I'm doing my life, but we don't see that like in this deeper strata, how your mind is working is inclining your personality, is inclining your family, is inclining the culture in certain directions. So it's important to pay attention to which seeds we're watering and which seeds we're not watering. And when the lava erupts and you're responding to it in the same way you always respond to it, then you're planting the same seeds again and again. And that's not creative. That's being stuck. Not far from here, there's an area called the Genesee Valley. Maybe some of you drove past it. And um, uh, many years ago, not many years ago, uh, six years ago, uh, I drove down here to interview a woman named Tony Packer, who was a student of... Um, um, my brain's been doing this all day. Uh, Philip Kaplow, who, who started this organization. And uh, she left... Uh, it was actually the day before she was being installed as the heir, and she quit. And uh, she felt like that the tradition had lost its orientation towards the most important thing, which is waking up. And she just started doing her own thing and uh, became a really fascinating teacher. And uh, I went to interview her. She died recently. And uh, so I went to her home. Uh, she was in a wheelchair. She can't get around very well. And uh, we started the interview, and I said to her, um, so I want to talk about your history, about your past, because it strikes me that, um, you know, you left Germany after the war, and, you know, something about that time must have influenced how you think about your practice and your independence. And she said, oh, I don't think about the past. And, you know, my psychotherapist mind, like, all the flags went up. <laughs> and I remember it was a day like today. The grass was like, it's just exactly like this landscape. And uh, I said, what do you mean you don't think about the past? And she said, uh, I, I don't give it any water or sun. And, it, you know, when you hear something that's completely new, I had that feeling. I had never had that thought. And this is how she worked with her past. It was there. She wasn't like, I don't look at it. But she's like, I don't pour water on it and give it sun and give it room to keep growing. Because it's over. And this is, I think, a more eloquent way of saying what the Buddha is trying to say. Which is the thought of renunciation. Also, a lot of the uh, seeds that are planted and get activated are not just activated because you're doing something with it. They're also activated because um, of uh, the, the senses. A certain smell comes and will activate a seed. A certain bird sound will activate a seed. 
like I hadn't thought about Tony Packer in a long time. And then I was walking into here and I looked out to the left and I, I remember coming around here to interview Tony Packer. But I didn't like make that happen, you see? So a lot of this is very impersonal, which Grant described, I think, very uh, clearly yesterday. But no matter what, when something arises, we have to let it into our practice. We have to let it into our heart. And that's how you make suffering really start working for you. Maybe one day you'll say, thank you for walking out on me. Or thank you for um, not meeting my needs. Thank you for the pain. Thank you for being unfair with money. And you'll see that all of these seeds that you're working with are real blessings. And you might think, you know, one day these seeds will become Buddha seeds. And all of them will just be seeds of awakening. But that's not true. All the seeds right now, no matter what they are, are seeds of awakening. Whatever's showing up in your practice is where you're caught. So maybe the first couple days you had more tastes of some calmness or stillness. And then uh, once that happens, there's enough spaciousness where then you start to see the things you don't like looking at. But you see them way more clearly. And this is called opening to dukkha. And this is the paradox of dukkha, is that most of us want to open to dukkha, but we don't want it to feel like dukkha. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really going to embrace suffering. It's going to feel pretty good. (laughs) The only thing that can keep us going is that Um, we feel more compassion and more love in our lives. It's the only thing that can keep us going. No matter how wounded you've been, no matter how stuck you get on a retreat, that you start to see again and again, oh, a path can open up and more loving is possible. And this is called oneness. When we say being one, it's not a numerical one. It's the energy of, oh, I can be one with this. It's a solidarity with life. With the lava field. And hopefully if the retreat's working... It will make you more raw. And you need to get close to that rawness. In Celtic mythology, they call it the thin space. Thin space. In Zen, it's called original mind. 
Trungpa Rinpoche called it the raw spot. But you can even notice it just in the place where sounds and the ear come together. Get really, really close. Where where does the hearing happen? Is it ear? Sound? Where do they come together? And you just really look at that. Where does the inhale start? Like really check that out. And that's the thin space. Or what I sometimes have been calling religious feeling. But today I don't like that word anymore. (laughs) So when the Buddha talks about craving, he's talking about missing that thin space. He's talking about being intoxicated with the dull movie of me that's on repeat or shuffle or whatever. And when the Buddha was a young man, he was uh, fasting, thinking that that would make him feel uh, pure. And it's true, I think. If anybody has had an eating disorder, one of the things about uh, not eating is you start to feel uh, pure. Like you could really control things. But anyways, it doesn't last so long. So the Buddha, uh, this is what the Buddha was doing. Um, This is after learning pranayama practice, learning Brahmanic meditation practices, doing all kinds of yoga practices, ascetic practices. The last one was fasting. And he just felt nothing was working. Everything works, basically. It's like this today. You go to the self-help section at chapters. Everything works. You get the tools or whatever they're called. But um, that doesn't mean everything can make you free. It might just work at one level in business or whatever. So um, one day uh, he touched his stomach to feel his navel and he could feel his spine, his lumbar spine. That's how thin he'd gotten. And he thought to himself, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die. This can't be the way to freedom. And then he had a memory of being a young boy in an orchard, and his father had taken him to an agricultural fair in a, near an orchard. And uh, the Buddha didn't like how the animals were being treated in the fair. So he went off to the orchard, and he lay on his back under a tree. And he was looking up at the sky, and it was the most content he ever felt. So he had this thought as a young man at this time. He's like, the safest place to go is to a tree. So he went and sat under a tree, at the root of a tree. That's where he felt safe. And he decided not to get up until he could resolve this issue of why he's unable to be content. How do you get free? And um, this is a brave thing. Most of us, if, if we want to get free, we just, you know, go to the mall. 
and we go be free. Dance club. Oh, I felt so free last night. But the Buddha sat under the tree and came under attack by Mara. The devil. Actually, probably, the only thing that unites Buddhism with the Abrahamic religions is this idea of the devil. Uh, the devil means uh, obstruction. In, uh, in Hebrew, Satan means um, opponent, one's opponent. And in Pali, the word Mara means the killer. So the Buddha was attacked by Mara. And you, some of you have maybe seen Buddhist iconography where the Buddha is sitting under the tree and he has a halo above him. And in the halo are all these characters with weapons. But the Buddha is just sitting there completely unfazed, like a mountain, just sitting there breathing. There's one scene where Mara's armies come and they shoot arrows at the Buddha's head. And the Buddha looks directly at the arrows as they're coming towards him and they turn into flowers and fall down on the ground. And you'd think that after the Buddha had his awakening, where he supposedly conquered Mara, that he'd be done with Mara, that he'd be done with uh, the killers. But actually, Mara occurs 50 times in the Pali Canon, and most of them happen after the Buddha's awakening which is a paradox that fundamentalist Buddhists have never been able to figure out. Very controversial. But this is mostly uh, what I want to explore uh, today, which is how Mara, the demonic, uh, keeps reappearing. The devil keeps coming back. The opponents keep coming back. Probably the most famous book on the devil in our culture is Dante's Inferno. Did anybody have to do that in high school? Stoned. <laughs> so in Dante's Inferno, as Dante goes down, uh, circumambulating downward, um, at the beginning of hell, are all things you'd expect. Fire, brimstone, cauldrons, uh, uh, flames uh, cu coming at Dante and so on, right? Shrieking voices, like everything we associate with hell. But actually, as he goes deeper and deeper down into the hell realms, as he comes to the bottom, it gets colder and colder. Does anybody remember the story? And at the very bottom, where Satan lives, it's frozen. And Satan is frozen up to his neck. And he has these six or eight wings that um, are flapping, even though he's stuck and can't get out. And they make a wind. And Dante is with Virgil, a poet. And Virgil says to Dante, just go, go into the wind. 
And with some, some courage, Dante goes towards Satan. And I think this metaphor is perfect. Because what is the devil? It's when we're stuck. It's when we're frozen. You can see it in your meditation practice. So Mara means being blocked, being stopped, being stuck, being frozen. It's the opposite of being spontaneous, being unrehearsed, being creative. Grant referred to Hakuin's Heart Sutra commentary yesterday, where Hakuin says, like a bead rolling on a tray. Mara is the opposite. And so if Mara is a spectrum, one end of the spectrum is like writer's block, being blocked, not knowing how to go forward. But the other end of the spectrum is being stuck in your life in a way where you're not flourishing and you're frozen and inhibited. And in your sitting practice, you can really see Mara. Buddha refers to the moments when there's awakening. Those little moments where, oh, remember I was talking about it as sukha, where, oh, there's some interest there. Whoa, you know, or, or insight. And Mara is the shutting down. And here's the important thing. They always come together. Because every time you start to open up, the energy of shutting down is going to come in. And you can just watch this playing out all day. Every time you have a good sit, just wait. (laughs) Or maybe you have some moments of real clarity, and then ten minutes later you're just in a cloud, and you just... Completely confused. I don't need it. That one doesn't want to be doesn't want to be here. In the Digha Nikaya, uh, the Buddha says, "Whenever a person is grasping, Mara is standing right beside them. Whenever a person is grasping, Mara is standing right there." blocked <clears throat> so when we shut down around a frozen sense of me that's the energy of Mara but there's some subtle ways that Mara comes in like maybe when you're sitting there there's a thought you just can't stop thinking about like uh Maybe if, uh, uh, what's an example? Uh, Your kids. If you have kids. How many people here have kids? Lots of people. You can put up your hand, Robin. Yeah. (laughs) So. (laughs) So, um, you come on retreat and there can be times where you can't stop thinking about your kids. Can't stop. 
So, if you were every day hanging out at the coffee shop, you're away from your kids for an hour, and you say to someone, "Oh, I can't stop thinking about," well, probably in an hour, you're just like, "Oh, it's great. I'm not with my kids." <laughs> if the day went on a little bit, you know. But when when you're in a space like this, when you see, "Oh, I can't stop thinking about my kids," usually it's saying something else, which is which is, "I'm stuck. I'm holding on to something here." And it's so important for your kids that you can be someone who's not always thinking about your kids. This may be a little hard to hear. It's so important for your heart that you're not just a mother or a father. It's so easy. It's so easy to just identify as one thing. So it's fine to miss your kids, but if what's happening is you're missing your kids and there's a lot of repetitive, repetitive, repetitive thinking about it, then there's something about the way you're identifying as a parent that's got you trapped. It's only eight days. Everybody's going to be okay. In fact, you'll get home and everyone'll be like, "Oh." <laughs> in some places in the Pali Canon, Mara is called Antaka. Uh, Anta is a border, and Ka is uh, means uh, to impose. So Antaka, Mara as Antaka is is the energy of imposing borders. And sometimes you can see that in subtle ways where, you know, you're paying attention to the breath, paying attention to the breath, inhaling, exhale, the mind's getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And then, out of nowhere, you're just completely somewhere else. Just, it just, completely somewhere else. So that's the way that sneakily the storyteller comes in and imposes a border around the oh or a gate and just stops you. You can't go through this gate because it's a threat to me. You see, the greatest fear of the storyteller is that it's going to be out of a job. Based on the assumption that the storyteller knows deep down that it's not always needed, right? It's like if you ever kind of had a job where you're not really needed, so you have to like make work and make people see like how you're kind of important. These are called bullshit jobs. So, um, Mara is an imposter. Mara is an opponent. Mara blocks things, and the opposite of being blocked is emptying. Spaciousness is a path, and the whole idea of a path is that a path is free of obstruction. 
So Mara is hindrances. Mara is obstruction. A path is the opposite of the obstruction. It's an opening up. And our Buddha nature is to, to discover this path. To discover this path that's free of clinging. This path that's also bringing us home. And also, when you die, you have to let go of all of this anyways. You have to. I've sat with people who are dying, who are ready to die, and it's the most beautiful thing ever. And I've been with people like my father's mother. She didn't want to die. I sat with her while she was dying, just me and her in a room for hours. She had one hand holding the steel rail of her bed until it was white, and the other hand holding my hand as hard as she could, right up until the end. Wouldn't go. She didn't want to go. She was angry at everybody. Germans, Polish people, neighbors, everybody. She was angry at everybody. So when we're chanting at the end of the night and we chant for the ill and the dying, is it so beautiful how Rose does that? How Rose chants? Yeah. It's the only job that I tend to not give to anyone else. (laughs) All the other jobs rotate, but that one... I'm always scared that someone just won't be able to make meet that voice. <laughs> so one of the people we chant for is Peter Matheson, who died this year. I don't know how many of you know Peter Matheson. He wrote a famous book called The Snow Leopard. It's like a bead on a tray. <laughs> and uh, anyways... I I really loved his work, and Karina and I got to meet him a couple years ago. Um, Also, not that far from here, at at Bernie Glassman's farm. And, um, uh, anyways, I very much admired him. He's one of these people that they spoke in such a refined way that was annoying, and like from a completely different generation. So, um, anyways, uh, he had. leukemia uh, just for a year and then died at the end of the year and um, I read this in the New York Times Um, someone offered some suggestion uh, to him of a radical treatment for his leukemia and he said I don't want to hang on to life quite that hard it's part of my Zen training And then when they were alone, uh, Peter Matheson said to them, the Buddha says that all suffering comes from clinging. I don't want to cling. I've had a good life, you know. Lots of adventures. It's had some dark parts too, but mainly I've had a pretty good run of it and I don't want to cling too hard. I have no complaints. Isn't that beautiful? 
Wouldn't that be so nice if that was your obituary? She didn't cling so hard. She had a really tough time. He had a lot of heartache. So many things worked and so many things didn't work out. But they didn't cling too hard. So what traps us? What stops us? Deep down. Psychotherapy is so good for helping us see where we're trapped. But meditative practice isn't working at the same level of psychotherapy. Meditative practice is showing us structurally, structurally in the way we're perceiving each moment, how we trap ourselves. Psychotherapy is interested in how we can let go of old narratives to create new narratives. It's really important. We have to work at that level. Everybody in here has to work at that level. But we're doing something different in meditative practice. When you sit, you're not trying to fix your problems. And if you're on retreat trying to fix a problem, you're going to have a lot of suffering. Trust me. So, um, here's the Buddha talking to Mara. Your first squadron is sense craving. Your second squadron is boredom. Then hunger and thirst compose the third, craving the fourth. The fifth rank is sloth and torpor. Cowardice lines up as sixth. Uncertainty is seventh. Eight is malice paired with obstinacy. Gain, honor, and renown are next. An ill one, notoriety, self-praise, and denigrating others. These are the squadrons of Mara. So you should watch the negative self-talk but you should also watch the positive talk. Like, how many people are having cool experiences? Yeah. So you see, like, a cool experience, like, wow, that's a really cool experience. And it's like, something special must be happening to me. So here's a basic rule of practice whenever you think something special is happening, you're caught. <laughs> If you ever think it's kind of special or you're a little special, that's Mara. That's Mara. That's being stuck. It's a hell realm, actually. Praise is a hell realm and blame is a hell realm. And they go together. Usually a little praise and a little blame. And the people who praise themselves a lot also blame themselves a lot. One time when the Buddha was sitting under the tree, Mara came and said, You're not pure. You like to think you're pure. That's it. I love this story. It's It's easy to miss that one. But don't you have that too? You're sitting and something's saying to you, You can't do this. You think you can do this, but you can't do this. 
you should just go back to your kids. <laughs> this is for, for celibates, you know. <laughs> One time when the Buddha hurt his foot and was in pain, he was lying down. You should listen to this, those of you lying down. What? Are you stupefied that you lie down? So lazy. Or else entranced by poetic dreams? Are there not many aims you must still serve? Why do you dream away and tend to sleep alone in this secluded dwelling place? So the Buddha sat in the tree for six years. So at some point he hurt his foot and he had to lie down. It's not so bad. And this voice comes in, why are you lying down? Why are you lying? You can't get anywhere lying down. Oh, you're just in your poetic, dreamy state. Do you know that voice also? That's the devil. That's the killer. That is the killer. How many minds of people in their teens now are being killed by these kind of thoughts? You know, apparently there's this thing coming back in style with teenage girls where they're measuring the gap between their upper thighs. So if you're th- like that gap determines, I guess your uh, the u- ultimate body type is to have a gap between your upper thighs. And anybody who knows a little bit about nutrition, you know, like that's the area that's probably the hardest to lose weight of any area in your whole body. You can't really change that area. That's Mara. That's the killer. It's not their fault. Or anytime you're sitting there and you think that it should be different than what it is right now. That's Mara. It shouldn't be like this. That's Mara. If you're stuck in anger... and you keep seeing it as your anger, that's Mara. And when you can free up the energy of anger to just feel anger moving through your body, then it's mobilizing and it's great energy. It really can be a positive force of determination to feel angry. Or If you feel greed, and you keep thinking, oh, it's my greed, I'm so greedy, I want this, I want that, then that's Mara. But if you can feel the energy of greed, and just feel that energy, you'll become helpful. That's what greed flips into, when it's not personal. Same with delusion. When you're confused, the word delusion, you know, usually it's translated as ignorance uh, or delusion. You know, greed, hatred, delusion. Uh, The word is actually uh, moha. And I actually think, I was talking about this the other day, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but I think that that would be the word that you could use as boredom. We should retranslate that. Not, so instead of greed, hatred, and delusion, it should be greed, hatred, and boredom. 
And that's the energy of Mara, is boredom or aridity. And when you take an interest in boredom, it's not Mara. So here's the trick. The key to working with stuckness, the key to working with Mara, that the Buddha uses. The Buddha only uses one thing. Does anybody know what it is? He says to Mara, I see you. That's it. And whenever he does that, Mara turns away. So when there's stuckness, I can't stop thinking about my kids, you just note it. I see you. I see you. There's a text called the Padana Sutta, and uh, this is where Mara speaks. And uh, here, here, here's what Mara says after the Buddha says, I see you. This is the last time Mara shows up in the Pali Canon, I think. For seven years, I've dogged the Buddha's steps. This is Mara speaking. But haven't gained an opening into him. I am like a crow circling a stone that's the color of fat. Maybe I've found something tender here. Maybe there's something delicious. But not getting anything delicious there, I, the crow, had to go away. Like a crow attacking a rock, I'm tiring myself out with Gotama. Then despondent, right there, Mara disappeared. So I really like this passage because what it's saying is that Mara can't get a toehold. Mara can't get a foot in. So this is what we have to do with our posture. We release the tongue, keep the eyes really still, open the ears, and all this openness and receptivity means that when these different energies of Mara come in, whether it's the small energy, like, you know, just being blocked around something, or the big energy of fury, you know, or heat and lava, whatever energy is coming, we don't give it a place to land. It's like a no landing zone. It's interesting, you know, between North and South Korea, there's an area where humans can't go. It's like a no-person's land. And <clears throat> I met somebody last year when I was in BC. I met someone who's a documentary filmmaker who was going there to make a documentary because apparently some of the most interesting flora and fauna are growing between nor North and South Korea. Incredible diversity because there's no people there. Small area. So the opposite of Mara is fertility. The opposite of aridity is fertility. A place of energy, a place of interest. The Buddha never attacks Mara. 
the Buddha just says, I see you. And then Mara can't get a hold. The moral of the story is you don't have to get rid of any part of yourself. You just have to say, I see you. And the sorry history of spirituality in our culture, especially in the last century, has been that you should get rid of all your thoughts. You should get rid of your ego. But that's not what the Buddha is teaching. He's just saying, just see it. And then it has no power. It's self-liberating. If you see it, it doesn't have power to really see it. It's a kind of radical openness. And I think the real problem with institutional religion, including Buddhism, is that we've made the founders so remote. We confuse the founder for these statues and these statues for these people. <clears throat> and when you lose sight of the Buddha as a human being, then you lose sight of Mara. And then you might look at the statue of the Buddha and think, oh, a perfect person. But Mara was always there. Just like in your life. There's no perfect person. And every time you create the idea of a perfect person, you create Mara. Maybe Mara creates the idea of your perfect person. So, stop reading the yoga journal. Because Mara is not real. The perfect person is not real. We're here to wake up to what's real. So you need to go past your ideas about who you think you are. Every time you're stuck, it's a blessing. But you have to see it as Mara. And you have to have the wisdom to know that every time you have experiences of deeper and deeper insight, it's always going to come with Mara trying to shut it down again. So maybe you have five or ten minutes of really seeing something clearly, then you'll have ten minutes of thinking about onion rings and french fries. <laughs> Not to put any ideas in <laughs> Has anyone had that? Like, 
oh, I'm feeling so good. The food is so clean, you know. I'm not eating too much and not eating dessert, you know. I'm so, I want this to be like this all the time. And then a couple of minutes later, it's like, just thinking about ice cream flavors, <laughs> whatever your thing is. So that's Buddha nature, Mara nature. The nature to wake up, the nature to shut down again. And you know your practice is working when Mara's around. You know your practice is working when the energy of resistance is there. And you should also see that all of these things are mirages. These thoughts that seem so real, they're just air. And a few minutes later, there's something else there. It's summertime. I encourage everybody, when you're here in the next couple days, go outside in the break and meditate on a cloud. Just look up in the sky and just watch a cloud. And you'll see that the cloud has nothing to do with being and non-being. Just really watch that cloud it will really help you work with thoughts. It will really help you work with Mara. Thank you.